Rivera stops. Try and fuse the public enemies, bring a reign of terror, and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Hello, and welcome to the Momcast, the only podcast approved by the Temperance League of America. In this episode, you'll hear the story of a very scary man with a very silly name. Irving Wexler, who came to be known as Waxy Gordon, was born in 1886 into a very large and very poor Polish-Jewish immigrant family to parents that lived in Manhattan's Lower East Side, where they had settled eight years earlier after fleeing the Russian pogroms. The Russian pogroms were actually the reason for most of the Jewish immigrants coming to America. Pogroms were violent riots aimed at the Jewish populations caused by Russian government-propagated anti-Jewish sentiment. The Lower East Side was where many of these Jewish immigrants settled, and this is where Waxy grew up. Waxy got his life of crime started at a pretty early age, beginning to pick pockets around the age of 12. This is actually where he got his nickname. His friends had started calling him Waxy because of his ability to remove a victim's wallet so smoothly that it was as if it were coated in wax. He picked up the moniker Gordon later in life from one of the many aliases he'd used to shield his identity. However, he must not have been using enough wax because he got arrested for pickpocketing in 1905 at age 18, and then he got pinched another two times for pickpocketing. These three arrests ended up costing him 38 months of his life by the age of 23, so he decided to pursue a different avenue of criminal activity, working as a strong-arm goon for Dopey Benny Fine's gang. Dopey Benny would hire out his gang to labor unions for the purpose of viciously beating any workers that would try to work somewhere that a labor strike was going on. He would also hire them out to companies to viciously beat workers that were on strike. So, Dopey Benny was overall pretty indifferent to anything aside from getting paid. Waxy was a gruff, powerful, thick-set man, standing at a height of 5'8", and he was like the Babe Ruth of beating the shit out of people, so he quickly earned rank. In 1914, at the age of 28, Waxy was arrested, along with 13 other hoodlums, for the shooting of a court clerk who caught a stray bullet during a gang fight that had turned into a shootout. Waxy ended up being one of the only two gang members to get put on trial for the murder, supposedly because Dopey Benny had rolled over on him to save himself. After a lengthy trial, Waxy was acquitted. However, he ended up going to prison anyways for beating a man and robbing him of $465, which is approximately $11,000 when adjusting for inflation, which is what all other monetary amounts on this podcast will be adjusted for. Waxy got released in 1916 and returned to Manhattan to find that Dopey Benny had gone into hiding and was out of the labor racket. So Waxy, not wanting to waste his talents, hired himself out as a freelance labor goon, specializing in strike-breaking and robbery. Then, in 1920, the 18th Amendment went into effect, and the prohibition of alcohol began. In order to get a better understanding of the effects of prohibition on the political landscape of the time, here is my confidential informant, a political science professor from Rice University. Can you describe what the atmosphere of the country was like in 1920? Well, World War I was over. 
The nation was tired from that. We'd gone through a period of progressivism for the better part of the last two decades in which it was felt that government could accomplish many things. But by 1920, the country had grown tired of progressivism and Warren G. Harding ran for president on the, the slogan, a, camp, or a return to normalcy. So 1920 marked a, a turning point in terms of how people felt about what government could and couldn't do. What's interesting, though, is the probably the last mark of progressivism was the ratification of the Prohibition Amendment. What do you think the goal of Prohibition was in the eyes of those who voted to pass it? Well, I think in the true spirit of progressivism, some people truly believed that you could simply outlaw something and it would make the problems go away. Others supported prohibition pragmatically to get themselves reelected. As it turns out, the people who supported prohibition could be a tipping point in many elections. Um, and so both Republicans and Democrats sought the prohibition voters because um, it could put them over the top. So you had many politicians supporting prohibition who didn't really support prohibition, and many of them continued drinking. Warren G. Harding, it was believed, um, drank through his administration, um, and uh, he supported prohibition. Um, there were many like him, and so it would be wrong to conclude that everybody who supported it was genuine in their support and sincere. Certainly some people were sincere, but other people did it as a matter of political expediency. Were there any key events that really highlighted a uh, seeming need for something like the 18th Amendment? Well, it had been going on for a long time. Um, Temperance really was probably the first social movement in the United States going back to the period right after the Revolutionary War. It was the first social movement to involve women, too, because the cost of, of alcohol fell largely on women. This is a period when women couldn't work outside the home and there were, was very little in the way of a social safety net. So when the man of the house got into trouble with alcohol, lost their job, lost their home, um, a lot of the pain would fall on women who were di truly displaced with absolutely no um, means of support. And so um, that movement was going on throughout the 19th century, and they'd succeed locally. Uh, they could get a community to um, close down the bars, but the problem was that people would simply bring in alcohol from adjacent jurisdictions. And so the, the pressure to, to um, prohibit alcohol shifted up from the local level to the state level, and actually the state of Maine outlawed alcohol before the Civil War, and that was eventually rescinded. But the pressure to move it upward continued on throughout the 19th century. The National Congress, uh, the people in Washington were reluctant to support it because alcohol constituted a major source of revenue for the federal government. We didn't have an income tax, but we passed an amendment to the Constitution for a, a federal income tax at the beginning of the 20th century. And once the Congress had a reliable source of income, they were no longer as reluctant to outlaw alcohol. And so you had sort of a perfect storm there where you had an income tax to um, substitute from alcohol revenue, and uh, you had the continuing pressure for prohibition, and so that perfect storm uh, provided us with the 18th Amendment. How did prohibition affect the common American of the time, be it in New York City or in the more rural areas? Well, 
um, it turned a lot of law-abiding people into law-breaking people because um, just because it was outlawed didn't mean people didn't still like to drink. And so it had the effect of, of making many people disrespect the law. It was very difficult to enforce because the 18th Amendment and the later Volstead Act to implement the 18th Amendment didn't commit the kind of resources necessary to eliminate this commodity that many people sought. And so it was a very, uh, let us say, leaky law where there were many opportunities to get around it, and many people did. Uh, in terms of criminals, it created a, a dramatic opportunity for criminal activity. Obviously, we when uh, I don't know if it was a majority, but certainly a substantial portion of the American public is seeking to um, acquire an illegal uh, commodity. Uh, the criminal world is certainly willing to supply that commodity, and they got very, very rich and very large and very organized as a result of prohibition. What role did anti-immigrant sentiment play in uh, the creation of prohibition? Uh, I think it was part of the perfect storm. As I mentioned, Congress was freed once they had an income tax to um, eliminate alcohol, but public sentiment was also motivated by an anti-immigrant um, sentiment at the time. We had experienced massive immigration in this country uh, since the end of the night, well, actually it went on throughout the 19th century, but there were large waves of Italian, Irish, German, and Jewish immigrants coming in at the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning part of the 20th century. And of course, the Germans had their beer halls and the Italians drank their wine and the Irish, of course, drank beer and, uh, and hard liquor. And it was easy to um, convince many people that alcohol was part of the immigrant problem. And this motivated a lot of people to support prohibition who might not have otherwise. As always, a big thank you to our confidential informant. Uh, no longer as confidential. I probably should not be giving out where he works. Anyway, back to Waxy Gort. In the fall of 1920, a 34-year-old Waxy met Maxi, which would sound kind of cute if they both weren't psychopaths. Max Greenberg, aka Big Maxi, had been working as a bootlegger in Detroit and St. Louis, first getting his start in the illegal liquor racket by buying sacramental wine from Orthodox rabbis, the production of which was still legal under the Volstead Act, and then selling it to speakeasies. Maxi then moved into the importation of Canadian whiskey by way of Detroit, an endeavor that proved to be quite lucrative. Through some networking, Maxi reached out to Waxy in New York with the hopes of getting in contact with the big bankroll himself, Arnold Rothstein. Waxy knew Rothstein from previously working for him as hired muscle around the garment district, and would successfully put his new pal Maxie in contact with him. But Waxy would obviously want a part of the action after hearing about how much money was being made from booze. Maxie was hoping to secure $2.1 million for the purpose of acquiring a fleet of speedboats to increase the volume of liquor he was smuggling in from Canada. Rothstein met with Maxie and Waxy on a park bench in Central Park and listened to their pitch and request for financing. Rothstein told the two that he would take the evening to think it over. The following day, the three men met again, this time in Rothstein's office, where the big bankroll made a counterproposal. Rothstein would finance the venture, but 
the liquor would be purchased and brought in from Great Britain, since he figured that there was an untapped opportunity in the selling of authentic, fine scotch whiskey, rather than the rotgut whiskey that was being made from cutting the Canadian whiskey with a formaldehyde, a chemical usually used for embalming bodies in order to increase profit margins on the whiskey, not the bodies. Waxy got a small percentage from this business connection, which he would in turn use to start his own rum-running operation on the side. He would divert some of the liquor being brought into New York City on the purchase speedboats to Philadelphia, so as not to step on Rothstein's operations within New York. Waxy put together a gang of hoods from his old neighborhood of the Lower East Side to help him with the liquor smuggling operations. The liquor would be retrieved from Rum Row, which was a fleet of ships that had just crossed the Atlantic and anchored off the coast of New York and New Jersey, just outside the three-mile limit. It would then be brought ashore on the speedboats and then taken to the warehouses, where it would be cut and stored, and then sold to restaurants, clubs, and other bootleggers throughout New York and Philadelphia. After Rothstein ended his partnership, with the two in 1921, he continued to help finance them. Waxy took over two large warehouses when they split, one in the city and the other on Long Island. Rothstein would end up later using Waxy's speedboats to smuggle in diamonds and dope. As with rum running, it was Waxy who saw the large profit potential in narcotics and later introduced it to Rothstein. However, Waxy himself still lacked the finances to enter the narcotics racket on a large scale, at least during the early days of his liquor operation. It wasn't before long that Waxy had built his own operation into an efficient, far-reaching machine that he oversaw from his headquarters in the Knickerbocker Hotel on 42nd Street and Broadway. Waxy started to model himself after his mentor, Rothstein, living lavishly in a 10-room apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side, as well as owning a large home on the Jersey Shore. He had gone from being a rough goon to somewhat of a gentleman about town, adorning expensive suits and traveling solely by limousine. However, despite this polished appearance, at his core, he was still a grubby and coarse man. In 1925, government agents who had been watching Waxy's operation got lucky when Hans Furman, one of uh, Waxy's ship captains, was unhappy with the amount of money he had received from one of the shipments. Furman decided to get even by going to the authorities and telling them about a Canadian steamer that was on its way to Queens with a hidden cargo of liquor consigned to Waxy. On September 23rd, agents raided Gordon's headquarters, arresting everyone there, including Maxie Greenberg, as well as seizing maps, charts, and radio codes. Gordon, who was uh, actually en route to Europe for a vacation with his family, was arrested upon his return. Before Waxy's trial was to begin, Furman mysteriously died in a police-guarded New York hotel room. The police were quick to rule it a suicide, and the case against Waxy went down the drain. However, Waxy's rum-running operation was now exposed, and... All of his speedboats had been seized, and so Waxy had to abandon the operation, moving into New Jersey, along with Maxie. It was not long before the two muscled their way into another bootlegging operation, opening several breweries 
that were licensed to produce near beer, a non-alcoholic beer-tasting beverage. Waxy rigged these breweries to produce real beer as well, becoming the main supplier of bootleg beer to northern New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. He paid Jersey City Mayor Frank Haig handsomely for political protection for his operation. To throw off the pro-he agents, Waxy operated legal near-beer breweries throughout New Jersey in Patterson, Newark, Union City, and Elizabeth. From these breweries, trucks left daily with legal near-beer shipments. Meanwhile, the genuine beer was produced in the same vats, but before it went through the de-alcoholizing process, it was pumped by underground pipes to bottling plants, some of which were located miles away. Waxy hired a gang of armed goons to make sure his shipments of both near and real beer reached their destinations. On top of protecting his own shipments, Waxy would use these triggermen to give safe passage to other crime bosses' shipments, charging protection, of course. This protection charge put the liability, though, on any shipments coming through Waxy's territory squarely onto him. In the fall of 1929, a convoy of trucks loaded with booze owned by Salvatore Maranzano, the boss of a very large Italian-American crime family, was making its way through northern New Jersey, late at night, when it was forced to stop because of a downed tree in the middle of the road. The ten men riding shotgun, which at the time literally meant riding in the trucks with shotguns, got out to move the tree so they could pass. When they were suddenly ambushed, a group of masked men emerged from the bushes on both sides of the road and opened fire on the convoy. Three of Maranzano's men were killed instantly during the hijacking, and the rest were beaten and left stranded as the hijackers drove off with their trucks full of liquor. One of the men recognized Meyer Lansky and fingered him for it when Waxy met with Maranzano in New York to discuss the incident. Lansky had perpetrated the hijacking along with his partners Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel. This incident started a very tenuous relationship between Lansky and Waxy, causing them to become bitter enemies, despite both of them having been been mentored by Arnold Rothstein. The feud was long-lasting, and by 1931, it had become known in the underworld as the War of the Jews. By mid-1931, cooperation between Waxy and Lansky had become impossible. In addition to his feud with Lansky, Waxy was facing an investigation of his income tax returns by the Internal Revenue Service. So, Luciano and Lansky formulated a plan to feed the IRS incriminating evidence to help them put Waxy away, thus putting an end to the war without a slew of casualties. The plan was carried out with the help of Lansky's brother, Jake, who had several friends who were IRS agents. Jake traveled to Philadelphia and supplied the agents with financial information that led to the indictment of Waxy. This indictment introduced Waxy to a new enemy, Chief Assistant U.S. Attorney Thomas E. Dewey. With the spectacular conviction achieved in Chicago against Al Capone, the special agents of the intelligence unit of the IRS were reassigned to New York to begin the same process on the East Coast bootleggers, specifically Waxy Gordon. For two years, six investigators had worked full-time collecting evidence that would stand up in court. During the final six months, a half-dozen lawyers and 12 IRS agents formed the task force against Waxy. The ongoing investigation culminated in the arrest of Waxy at his hunting lodge that he owned in upstate New York. He had been hiding out there for months due to an attempt made on his life by members of Dutch Schultz's gang over a territory dispute. 
Because of this failed assassination attempt, Waxy had started keeping two bodyguards with him around the clock, as well as a speedboat docked by the lakeside and even a pistol under his pillow. But none of that helped him because in May of 1933, a 47-year-old Waxy was arrested and charged with income tax evasion. Thomas E. Dewey had a massive undertaking in building a case against Waxy for tax evasion. He had to find out who was selling supplies to the breweries, the trucks for transportation, the machinery in the warehouses, and the banks that were holding the money, and then subpoena each of them in order to legally acquire this information. In several instances, the investigating agents were in a foot race to get to these companies and banks' records before Waxy's men did, and they usually lost. The agents would find that accounting entries had been rewritten or altogether destroyed. There were times that when agents went into New Jersey banks and were told to sit and wait, only to watch as Waxy's men would show up and withdraw all of the money from his accounts, and then remove any evidence of ownership of those accounts. In one instance, agents were arrested in a Hoboken bank by the local police and then held until Waxy's men arrived and carried off the records. Although Waxy never opened a bank account in his own name, he was very careless at times and would endorse checks using his own name, which I'd imagine would be Irving Waxler rather than the nickname Waxy Gort. On top of dealing with crooked police, Dewey would also line up dozens of witnesses, only for them to suddenly forget everything they had to say. Yet, Dewey pressed on, and by the end of the two-year investigation, after interviewing over 1,000 witnesses, searching 200 bank accounts, and tracing the toll slips on more than 100,000 calls, Waxy was finally charged with evading the payment of federal income tax. At trial time, Waxy was accused of having an unreported net income of 19.3 million dollars in 1930 and 16.2 million dollars in 1931, which was a pretty d drastic difference from the $140,000 that he had claimed during these two years. After nine days, 131 witnesses, and over 900 exhibits, Dewey arrested his case, and the defense then tried to convince the jury that the businesses were actually owned by Maxie Greenberg, who was now deceased. The final defense witness was Waxy himself. His testimony proved to be pretty pathetic. He claimed to be lured into the beer business by Maxie and that he was nothing but an unknowing pawn. A verdict was reached by the jury in just 51 minutes, and Waxy was found guilty. The judge fined him a total of $2.4 million and sentenced him to serve 10 years in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. In 1940, after serving only seven of these ten years, Waxy was released and immediately hightailed it for San Francisco, despite still owing $14.5 in back taxes. When San Francisco police officers found him registered at an expensive hotel, he told them that he had come west to begin anew, and that he was now selling a revolutionary type of cleaning fluid. Although he had over $6,000 in cash with him, the police arrested him for vagrancy. Waxy left San Francisco and tried to fly under the radar back in Philadelphia, which he was not very good at, because in 1944, in the midst of a sugar ration because of World War II, he was caught selling 10,000 pounds of it to an illegal distillery and was subsequently sentenced to another year in jail. Upon his release, Waxy went right back into a life of crime. 
I guess it was the only thing he ever knew. This time, he pursued the drug trade. He soon was heavily involved in the importation and distribution of heroin. And by 1950, the narcotics Briu had a pretty large file on him. In December of 1950, the Briu set up a sting using an ex-convict to befriend Waxy and set him up. After two successful drug transactions, Waxy got nailed on August 2nd, 1951 by federal agents for selling heroin. This arrest meant that Waxy was not just facing a sentence for heading a narcotics ring that had international connections, but that he was also on the hook as a four-time offender to the Bums Law, which called for an automatic life sentence to any criminal convicted of more than three separate felonies. Upon his guilty verdict being passed down, the judge presiding over the trial told the court, since his first act of lawlessness 46 years ago, his contempt for authority, manifested by progressively more serious criminality, has been like a malignant cancer, weakening the dignity and good order of the community. He then turned to Waxy and told him, You have demonstrated repeatedly that there is no crime or racket to which you would not resort in order to make a dollar. Your latest and most dastardly offense is typical of your hostility, and it should ring down the curtain on your parasitical and lawless life. Ouch. Waxy then received his final sentence, 25 years to life. Waxy spent a year in Sing Sing before being transferred to Attica, and then finally to Alcatraz. He was only on the island for six months, though, as on June 24th, 1952, a 64-year-old Waxy Gordon died of a heart attack.